We have a very special guest coming up midway in the program, and that man is Sandy Mitchum. Samuel Mitchum is a, a first-class historian. He's an historian of the Civil War, historian of different wars, World War II, uh, as well as World War I, and uh, different epics of history. Great historian. And he has a new book out regarding the Confederacy, Voices from the Confederacy. And uh, he's going to say some things about the Old South. So he's coming up in just a few moments. We're going to talk about his book and how you can purchase his book. Just a, just a great man, and I know that you'll appreciate his work. Now, before we do that, I would like for us, and we have not had an opportunity to do this until now, and that is to make a short review of Biden's speech last week, which was, of course, his hate-filled, hate speech-filled rant is what it was. It was just a speech of, uh, filled with ranting and ravings against MAGA Republicans. And I, it is so shocking to see what, exactly the speech that he, that he delivered, and you can only stomach so much of it. But I did notice also that the Democrats, the mainstream media, they were just all lapping it up, and they loved it. And I thought, this is so incredible because the speech is so unlike anything that we've ever heard in America. He was actually foaming at the mouth against MAGA Republicans, as he called them, and just being so hateful and vitriolic against them. And I thought, think of all of the, think of all of the problems that we're facing in the world. Think about communist China and what's going on with China and Taiwan. Think about the, the Islamic State in Iran and all the problems that we have in the Mideast. And think about the withdrawal from Afghanistan and the people that we left behind over there. Think about all the problems we have at home domestically, such as the highest gas prices, the highest inflation that we've ever seen in my lifetime. Think about the open border, the open border that's absolutely crushing America with the influx of so millions, millions and millions of people from all over the world, and we're not doing anything about it. And it seemingly we're just rocking along, going along the way. And yet Biden gets up there. Of course, he's the one who's orchestrated all of these problems. So he's not going to bring them up, obviously. But the only thing that he was interested in was hammering against the MAGA Republicans. Well, let's talk about his hate speech filled rant for a moment. First of all, before we look at it, some of the things he had to say, I reject. And there are a couple of good reasons to reject the common category of hate speech as an infraction that needs punishment, for example. One thing is that to single out speech or words that incite to criminal behavior, supposedly, ostensibly, is to curtail speech, period. And that is, if we're going to identify hate speech as incitement to criminal behavior, then we are absolutely curtailing free speech. And that's exactly what's happening. That's exactly what the Democrats want. They want to curtail free speech. They've already assaulted from the time of 1913 forward, the time of Woodrow Wilson. That is, they've assaulted the Fourth Amendment, that is, right to privacy. And the IRS has violated that. The whole entire, entire income tax code has violated the Fourth Amendment. So that's trashed, gone. But now we have also a trashing of the First Amendment as well. And that is under the category of hate speech. Curtailing speech is what it's about. And that's why the Democrats like it. That's why they have insisted upon it. 
and they always a flutter about hate speech. Number two, what is hateful to one is not necessarily hateful to another. It just depends upon who's doing the speaking, who's doing the defining, and who's doing the so-called hating. If I were to say that Islam is a false religion, which I have said in public in different debates and so forth and on the radio, it's a false religion. Muhammad was not a prophet of God. He was a fabricator. That is considered by many people to be hate speech. But we need to allow speech that we consider to be hateful to be spoken. Otherwise, we are absolutely curtailing free speech. And what is Hateful to one is not necessarily hateful to another. It just depends upon who's in the driver's seat, and that's exactly what the Democrats want to do. They want to be in the driver's seat and define for us what is hate speech and who's doing the hating. So what it amounts to, and this is, this is the real rub, totalitarian-minded people and totalitarian governments always, always curtail free speech. And that's exactly what the Democrats are all about because they're totalitarian-minded. As long as they sit in the driver's seat of the government, they not only curtail the speech of others, they have free reign to define what is hate-filled or what is hate speech as much as they want to do. Now, that's exactly what was taking place in Joe Biden's speech the other night. And he talked about the maggot Republicans. NPR, here's government radio. By the way, why do we even have government radio? Government-sponsored radio. It's always the liberal position. They even call it an attack. His whole speech was an attack on half of America. Now, before noting some of those evil sayings that Biden gave in that speech, I want you to think about how the United Nations defines hate speech. Now, I'm not an advocate of the United Nations, but this is what the left wants to do. They want us to fall under the aegis and the control of the United Nations. That's exactly what Joe Biden did when he first got into office. He put us right back in to different accords, such as the Paris Climate Accord, which was a United Nations-driven accord. They wanted us to be a part of the United Nations. Donald Trump was the first president to pull us back from the UN. But they want the UN, so here's what the UN says about hate speech. Quote, in common language, hate speech loosely refers to offensive discourse targeting a group or an individual based on inherent characteristics such as race, religion, or gender, and that may threaten social peace. Okay, so far, the UN system goes on to address the issue even further this way, and I want you to hear carefully how they say it. Any kind of communication and speech writing, or behavior that attacks or uses pejorative or discriminatory language with reference to any identity factor. What's an identity factor? Race, religion, gender, and here, political affiliation. Any identifying factor, political affiliation falls under an identity factor. So any language that is pejorative or discriminatory against a class of people or an identity factor of people, that is classified as hate speech. So we have the words attacks, pejorative language, discriminatory language, with reference to any identity factor, such as make America great again, MAGA Republicans, 
or AKA Trump supporters. Well, let's listen to what Joe Biden had to say. He himself violated the canons of hate speech. And I don't know why people aren't calling him out on this. He's, it was hate-filled rant is what it was. Here's how he said it. Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans represent an extremism that threatens the very foundations of our republic. Another quote, MAGA Republicans do not represent or respect, rather, the Constitution. They do not believe in the rule of law. They do not recognize the will of the people. We'll come back to that in a moment. Do not respect the Constitution. MAGA forces are determined to take this country backwards to an America where there is no right to choose, no right to privacy, no right to contraception, no right to marry who you love. MAGA Republicans embrace anger. They thrive in chaos. They live not in the light of truth, but in the shadow of lies. One more. MAGA Republicans are destroying American democracy. They look at America and see carnage and darkness and despair. They spread fear and lies, lies told for profit and power. Or those are some of the quotes that Biden gave in a speech. Now, when we come back from a break, we're going to go over some of this. We're going to take an examination of exactly what he had to say about these hateful remarks in just a few moments. All right, let's pick up some of those phrases and lines that Biden gave us in his, his rant the other night regarding the MAGA Republicans. One of the statements he made was threatening the very foundation of our republic, do not respect the Constitution and embrace anger. Now, let's just uh, think about this for a moment. Number one, this is just, it's just a laughing matter if it were not so serious that Biden postures himself and the Democrats as honoring the Constitution. This is absolutely the biggest farce that I have ever heard. I mean, ladies and gentlemen, we haven't followed the Constitution since the time of Woodrow Wilson, and especially since the time of FDR. The Democrats have led the way. We've trashed the Constitution, and we don't even we don't even recognize it as worthy of birdcage liner at this point. We don't follow the Constitution in any way, shape, or form. Not any way. If you doubt that, just read the Tenth Amendment and be ashamed of yourself. Say, you know, the Tenth Amendment, what is that? That is anything that is not specifically given to the federal government is left to the states and the states alone. And Biden is about mandating that people cannot drive gasoline vehicle automobiles by 2035. Where did he get such power? It's not because we're following the Constitution. No, the Constitution has been disregarded in, in mass by the Democratic Party and Republicans as well. And we're not following that at all. Secondly, Biden is apparently ignorant of or hopes that we're ignorant of the actual facts of the past election. That is the presidential election that put him into office. Now, he talked about people not respecting the rule of law. And then he went on to talk about, which I didn't read to you, talk about people who, not, who do not accept the results of that election. Ladies and gentlemen, Mark Zuckerberg just explained to the American people the other day that the FBI actually engaged in tipping the scales via Facebook in favor of the Democrats and the election of Joe Biden. It was not a fair election. The FBI actually inserted itself and suppressed information via Facebook and all social media accounts 
so that American people would be ignorant in the dark about what Biden family really is. That's exactly what happened. But that's okay with Zuckerberg, by the way, for he spent hundreds of millions of dollars supporting the Democrats. And not only so, but as Mark Levin has repeatedly shown, and carefully so on his radio show, the state of Pennsylvania, for example, actually fixed the system to help Joe Biden and the Democrats. That is, if you're going to change the election laws, it must go through the Congress of the state of Pennsylvania, but that was not how it was done. It was single-handedly done by the governor of the state, and that happened in more than one case in America. And as I speak right now, the state of Arizona has had several days of testimony giving updates to the election maladministration conducted nationwide. The Arizona Corporation Commissioner was so alarmed. His name is Jim O'Connor. He's been so alarmed at the fraud that he sent a letter to all Arizona County supervisors, recorders, election directors, and sheriffs demanding that they immediately cease the use of voting machines in the upcoming 2022 general election. Now, that's what's going on. Now, I want you to know, you don't ever hear anything about that in the mainstream media. You don't hear anything about that either on Fox News. They have refused to talk about the maladministration of the last election. For some reason, the, the owners of Fox News have refused to even suggest that the last election was fraudulent in any way. For example, Dinesh D'Souza put a movie out, produced a movie, 2,000 Mules, showing very clearly what happened in the last election. It has had no coverage, zero coverage from Fox News. But a lot of people have seen it. And people want to know the answer to the question because there was fraud in the last election. I believe Biden was is a fraudulently elected president myself. So far from respecting the rule of law, Republicans are some of the only ones remaining in our nation that keeps America from being an all-out oligarchy, which is just about where we are. We're just about in a dictatorship. That's why Biden can... Forbid Americans, have you thought about this, from buying a gas-powered vehicle by 2035? Isn't that amazing that he can, he can actually forbid you from utilizing petroleum products? How did the president obtain such power? He did so because we've been trashing the Constitution from the time of FDR. The Constitution was set up by our founders to give a free market, to allow freedom that people might enjoy what God gave them and, the, and utilize their own talents, and we can go as high as we want to go. But no, no, no longer. No, we're going to be suppressed, and that's exactly what's happening. And thirdly, lastly, I want to say something about this. Biden angrily denounced Republicans for embracing anger. There is, there is not a, a more perfect epitome of an anger, angry speech than that which Biden gave in front of the red background with military people beside him, the Marines standing in the background. And he just tolerated about MAGA Republicans. And yet he talked about Republicans embracing anger. Choice, isn't it? In his outrage, Biden illustrated why hate speech categories should be abandoned because 
he himself participated in hate speech. It's a ploy. Hate speech is a ploy to shut down free speech because it doesn't apply to Democrats at all, does it? No, it does not apply to them. No lefty pundit, no liberal commentator, no news anchor from mainstream media, to my knowledge, has criticized Biden for violating the canons of hate speech. That category is only reserved to curtail speech on the right. That's what's going on in America. When we lose our free speech, as we already are doing right now, then we're losing our country. Our country is in a tailspin. Unless we can get hold of it in this next election, we are toast. We are gone. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back. We are talking with our good friend, Sandy Mitchum. Sandy Mitchum is a premier historian. He's been a college professor. He's been in the Army. And he's a, actually a historian for the South, really the Old South. And this, this book that he's published recently, The Voices from the Confederacy, a brand-new book, actually, The Civil War Stories from the, from the Men and Women of the Old South. Sandy, thank you so much for being here today. I wanted to talk with you about your book and some of the things that you uh, prefer, uh, stories out of it that you prefer. So um, anyway, welcome to the program. Well, thank you very much. Hey, listen, Sandy. Now, I'm uh, just curious about this. Uh, you write more books, and I mean, they're big, heavy duty, and they have a lot of footnotes and a lot of uh, big bibliographies, and you write them more quickly than I can read them. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you must read slow, Bill. <laughs> well, you know what? That's true. That's a true statement. I do read slowly. Well, on this one particularly, the voices from the Confederacy, uh, this is intriguing, the, the Civil War stories from the Old South. Um, let me just, let's just start here. What basically is your take on this one? It's, uh, I understand you went parallel to the one that you did recently about the, the Civil War generals, the Southern generals. Yes, I did Encyclopedia of Confederate Generals. That's my tome. Um, the average book is sixty to 70,000 words. Um, Encyclopedia of Confederate Generals is 252,000 words. So it's huge, and if you don't like it as a book, it serves very well as a doorstop. Okay, okay. But, uh, <laughs> All right. Uh, this one's about 90,000 words, and it's mainly just the... Uh, all the just war stories from uh, uh, the soldiers, the women, the uh, uh, slaves, uh, Robert E. Lee, Jeb Stewart, and those show up occasionally, but uh, it, it's, it's not about them. It's about uh, what the average person went through, uh, what they did, what they uh, experienced uh, during the war. The rank and file. Yeah. All right. Let's uh, let's start. Ahead. I was going to say let's start uh, w regarding the slaves, and uh, also you might mention too that I know that there were blacks who served in the Confederate Army, which is probably not well known. But uh, might you might address that as well. But about the slaves in the Civil War, and how did they react, and what was the? Uh, I mean, the aftermath of the war was pretty. Um, devastating to the South, to say the least. So um, maybe you can pick up and take off on that one. Well, the um, slaves' reaction was not what you would see from a Hollywood movie uh, because uh, they knew that um, 
they could starve too if the Yankees came through and burned all the uh, food and the uh, corn cribs and uh, uh, looted all the smokehouses. Uh, they wouldn't have anything to eat either. And um, you know, they, uh, I think, uh, generally speaking, they hated slavery, but uh, they did not hate white race, and uh, they didn't uh, even hate Massa, uh, which uh, would surprise a lot of people. In fact, one of my favorite stories of the whole war dealt with a young uh, uh, African-American. Her name was uh, Ida Lee Adkins. She was eight years old when the Yankees came. And Ida Lee uh, liked her mess. Uh, Ida Lee had a sweet tooth, and he would go to uh, Raleigh's about uh, 60 miles away uh, three or four times a year. And uh, he would always bring her back uh, hard rock candy or gumdrops, something sweet to eat. Um, she didn't care for her mistress because uh, I really liked to steal sugar cubes. <laughs> and he, she thought her mistress had eyes in the back of her head. She usually caught her, and I'm sure there was a spanking involved. You know, that generation believed in spare the rod, spoil the child. But... Uh, Massa was too old to go to war, and the Yankees showed up uh, one day, and uh, he fired a rifle at him. He had a single-shot rifle to musket. Fortunately for him, he missed, and the Yankees captured him, tied him up, and started looting the house, and they were stealing anything of value, silverware, and so forth. But they were also looting the smokehouse. And I only knew that uh, if they took all the food, uh, they wouldn't have anything to eat. Uh, uh, at least uh, 80,000 black people starved to death after the war, hmm. uh, along with 50,000 whites, according to James Downs, uh, who wrote a, a wonderful book uh, entitled Sick Freedom, which should have been a Pulitzer Prize winner. But uh, anyway, she tried to cut Massa loose, and uh, uh, Union Sergeant pulled out his knife and threatened to cut her tongue out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she took off out the back. And um, uh, she had a brilliant idea. Uh, at that point in the war, nobody in North Carolina had uh, sugar. Um, they had to use uh, uh, watermelon syrup or honey uh, to sweeten anything. And they had some bee gums, some bee boxes out back. Uh, so she took a limb and knocked over the bee boxes and stirred up the bees until <laughs> and so she could smell the poison. And then she took off, and the bees took off after her, and she ran right into the middle of the Union uh, cavalry. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, you know, some of the Yankees were still on their horses. Others were on the ground holding the horses. Others were looting the plantation. And... Uh, uh, the bees started stinging Yankees, and they started stinging horses, and the horses were throwing Yankees high into the air, and uh, the Yankees were cursing. But as Adelie said, uh, what does a bee care if you curse it? Hmm. And um, they uh, they dropped uh, all the, the uh, using pillowcases to put the silver in. They dropped those. They dropped all the food, and they were trying to fight off the bees, and the horses took off running. And um, Yankees uh, took, off, took off after the horses, and the bees took off after both. And the entire Union Cavalry Detachment was uh, 
I'm totally routed by an eight-year-old African-American. It's rather <laughs> unique. Very good unique story. story. Yeah. And uh, after uh, the Yankees left, the mistress said, they, they called her the old miss, uh, said, I believe you have saved us all. And she took a gold ring from her own hand and put it on Adelaide's hand. And mm-hmm. uh, when the federal uh, writer interviewed Adelaide in, I think it's 1938, and she was still wearing that gold ring, um, you know, mm-hmm. given the poverty in the New South era right. and Reconstruction, it was probably the only piece of jewelry she ever got in her whole life. And she's very proud of it, even in the 1930s. That's a great story. That, that really is. You know, uh, listen, Sandy, tell me about the uh, blacks, uh, the African-Americans that served in the Confederate Army. Well, um, there were about 80,000 to uh, 96,000 of them, according to Colonel Kennedy of the uh, Commander General Staff College. Um, they uh, were variously motivated. Um, but you got to remember, they, they were Southerners, too. And the Yankees didn't confine themselves to burning the big house. They also burned slave quarters. They burned the slave cabins. Um, they, uh, they treated the African-Americans very rough. In fact, uh, uh, they have a term for them. They call them contraband, which usually is um, mm-hmm. reserved for goods. Uh, it's roughly equivalent to the German word undermenschen, uh, which is what Hitler called the Jews and the Gypsies and the Slavs. Hmm. Uh, so um, uh, they didn't—they weren't the great liberators they were portrayed to be. In fact, down at Natchez, uh, after, right after the war, Natchez had a population of about twenty-five thousand. But it was swollen to about 120,000 by uh, Af- newly freed uh, African Americans. Well, the Yankees uh, didn't want them all over the place, uh, uh, so they put them in what they call corrals, which uh, you know, which we usually associate with cattle, mm-hmm. uh, down south of uh, Natchez. Um, they called it the Devil's Punch Bowl. They're actually three of them. They would allow the uh, men out to work, but the women and children were not allowed to leave the corrals. And, of course, in that close quarters, you had a lot of diseases and typhus spreading. And um, it killed about 20,000 of them. Oh, is that um, right? Yeah. Um, matter of fact, if you go on YouTube um, there's a, uh, and you type in uh, concentration camps, Civil War, uh, Channel 12 in Jackson did a um, uh, special on it. Uh, it's rather short, but it tells you all about it. And um, Channel 12 at that time was owned by African Americans. I don't know who owns it now. But mm. uh, they, uh, uh, some, many of the slaves uh, wanted to go back to the plantation. Uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, slavery wasn't as bad as this. Mm-hmm. And um, if you go down there, you still come across an occasional skull, but it's right on the river. I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> Natchez, Mississippi, you said, right? Yeah, South Adams County. Um, wear heavy boots. And, mm, yeah. Because, you know, you got 
cottonmouth water moccasins, and they um, they're uh, particularly vicious. Yeah, I'm I've been down that country. <laughs> yeah, I know about it. Uh, That's right. In fact, they used to say that uh, uh, this, that area produced the sweetest peaches in Mississippi, but mm. none of the uh, locals would eat them because <laughs> they knew what fertilized them. Mm. Uh, so they didn't. Uh, uh, the Yankees were not the uh, wonderful liberators that they like to portray themselves right. as being. Well, no, this, uh, these are sides of the Civil War that we haven't heard about, and I'm glad that you've uh, been able to document some of that. Let's take a break, Sandy, and we'll be sure. back in just a moment. We're talking with Samuel Mitchum about his newest book, Voices from the Confederacy. This is about uh, the, the rank-and-file people in the Civil War, and it's, it sounds like an interesting book. We'll be back in a moment. Sandy, I just wanted to ask you, uh, continuing regarding your book, The Voices from the Confederacy, brand-new publication, there's one area of the Civil War that has also intrigued me, besides uh, about the, the blacks that we talked about in the first segment, but then that was the medical care that the Southern soldiers and all the soldiers received. I, I actually marvel uh, when I read and, and been to some of the Civil War battlefields and how they discuss what kind of remedies they used to treat those wounds and the medical care they received is absolutely, I don't know, I just don't, it's just almost like we don't have any real men today reading about those kind of guys. Yeah, well, a lot of them died as a result of it, too. Um, one of my favorite women in the war was uh, Phoebe Pender. She was a Jewish widow, and she knew the uh, Secretary of War. And uh, he asked her to set up a hospital and become the matron or the administrator. And she said, I don't know anything about medicine. And, uh, uh, he said, uh, neither is anybody else. Mm. You know, over half the uh, physicians in the Civil War had not practiced medicine before the war. Um, it could explain the uh, high rate of casualties and death. Um, and I visited that uh, place. Um, it was called Chimborazo uh, there in Richmond. Uh, uh, Phoebe Pender's hospital treated uh, 76,000 sick and wounded patients during the war. Some of them, of course, were captured Yankees. But uh, I think one of the main uh, reasons the North suffered so many more deaths than the South um, uh, dealt with the medical care. Um, the North uh, suffered about, uh, uh, what was it, uh, 380,000 deaths. The South, uh, about 240,000. And uh, uh, one of the reasons is the North uh, used sponges to clean the wounds. Mm. Well, if, uh, you know, of course, you know that if uh, um, I'm shot and treated before you, and then they treat you and they use the same sponge, uh, you're likely to receive a blood infection mm. if you have a different type of blood than me. And um, uh, for a wounded uh, person, um, that might result in death. Mm -hmm. uh, the South didn't do it that way. They used rags. They sterilized rags. And they use a rag on a patient and throw it in a barrel. And they wouldn't use that rag until later. And later they would empty the barrel, and boil the rags, sterilize them, and put them in, fold them up and put them back in the hospital. And um, like I say, I think that's one reason... Uh, you know, blood infection was a major reason the North suffered so many more deaths. 
But um, well, why didn't uh, why didn't the northern uh, why didn't the northern troops use the sterilized rags? I mean, why did they do that? Uh, well, I don't know. Uh, I've never found out. Uh, I mean, I'm curious as to as to think that they would sterilize them in the south, but they did not in the north. Well, it's a different theory, and uh, also uh, with the blockade and such, the South probably couldn't get the, the uh, sponges. Uh, Good thing. Uh, it's easier to north, north to it. Hmm. The Southern medical theory was better. Um, the South was much better educated than in the Civil War era than is commonly portrayed. Um, the uh, Depending on the source, uh, the lowest uh, literacy rate I've seen was uh, James McPherson of Princeton. He said it was uh, eight, the South was 80% literate. Uh, the Kennedy brothers uh, said it was uh, cited an Albanac that said it was 92.5% literate. Um, even at the 80%, uh, the South would have been... Uh, better educated than any countries in Europe except Sweden and uh, Denmark. The uh, literacy rate in England was 75%. You never see it portrayed as being an illiterate nation. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think some prejudices uh, creeped into the story. And, but, Sounds and like they had them. Uh, Sounds like they had better literacy rates than we do today. <laughs> It's certainly better than the Louisiana legislature. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Listen. <laughs> but, uh, Phoebe Pender was a great woman. They uh, they honored her with the U.S. postage stamp in 1955. She was a bit of a legend after the war. And, of course, she continued running her hospital several months after the war because uh, you know, wounded men... Uh, uh, we're still wounded. Appomattox didn't change that. It took some of them a long time to recover. Right. Now, Sandy, did the war be- beginning in 1861, finishing in 65, Civil War, did it did it change over time? I mean, did they did they learn as they went along? I suppose they probably did, and it's not portrayed really that way. How did that? How did it change? Well, it changed in a number of ways. It became more brutal, for one thing. Um, but, um, oh, I, yeah, I talk about it. Uh, the Confederate volunteer in 1861, uh, he came along with heavy boots, with thick soles. He had a heavy double-breasted coat with a long skirt, a huge overcoat. Often he had a cape. He had a knapsack, which was uh, had a full load of underwear, soap, towels, had a comb and brush, toothbrush, writing paper, envelopes, pens, paints, uh, pencils, ink, uh, boot polish, smoking tobacco, chewing tobacco, pipes, cotton bandages in case he got wounded, needles and thread, buttons, table knife, forks and spoons. Um, it weighed 20 to 25 pounds. And then on the outside, he had two folded blankets and a rubber uh, oilcloth. And in addition to that, the knapsack, he had a haversack, which was loaded down with provisions. He had a canteen full of water. He had revolvers and bowie knives in addition to his rifle and bayonet. And uh, then... 
every five to ten men formed a mess, and they would have a large camp chest containing skillets and frying pans, a coffee boiler, coffee box, lard bucket. Um, I had a salt box, sugar box, a meat box, um, meal box, flour box, plates, cups, probably saucers. And uh, uh, eight to ten of these chests would fill the typical Army wagon. It took two strong men to put one of those uh, chests in the wagon. Hmm. And uh, each company had several tents and small iron stoves, complete with stovepipes. In addition to that, the officers all had valises. So each company had a small wagon train. And um, uh, that changed rapidly. Uh, The principle became uh, less baggage, less labor. And early in the war, if you followed a Confederate unit, uh, you could trace it by uh, its discarded items. Um, The uh, overcoats were quickly discarded. The knapsacks disappeared almost altogether, as did the clean clothes and underwear. Uh, The Confederate soldier had one blanket and one oil cloth, and they rolled them up and tied them over their left shoulder. Tents became a rarity. The men discovered that two of them could sleep together, uh, put an oil cloth on the ground, uh, then they'd lie down, put two blankets over themselves and cover themselves with the other soldiers' oil cloth and could be comfortable enough. And, um, and there weren't many tents so when they were in the field. That changed when they went to winter quarters, of course. But... Um, uh, they, some of the men even discarded their cartridge boxes and uh, put the uh, ammunition in their pockets. Uh, the canteens were replaced with uh, heavy tin cups. They were strong enough, and um, they would um, drink when they crossed a creek or a stream or came up to one. Um, uh, revolvers were sent home. Uh, they weren't much use against the Yankees, and uh, but they were very effective against marauders. Uh, so they were uh, given to the women and children. Um, gloves were discarded. Bayonets were often thrown away, and the camp chests were scrapped. Um, they even changed the shirts. Uh, early in the war, it was uh, uh, flannel shirts. They went to cotton shirts. They were easier to wash, and uh, the vermin weren't uh, the lice and such weren't mm-hmm. as attractive uh, to the cotton as they were to the uh, flannel. And um, several messes would often go together, and they had one skillet and a couple of frying pans, and they would uh, fix their dinner uh, there and you know, pass around the skillet. Uh, toward the end of the, uh, well, the middle of the war, the typical private had one hat, one jacket, one shirt, one pair of pants, uh, one pair of drawers, uh, a pair of shoes if available. Some of them didn't have shoes. Uh, and one pair of socks, one blanket, one rubber blanket or oil cloth. And a haversack, and that was it. The wagons uh, no longer carried the chest. They carried ammunition and quartermaster and commissary stores, sometimes medicine. Um, the food bag was primitive. The 
typical rubble uh, cooked bacon. I called it blue bacon. It was a processed thing with uh, uh, salt bacon, if you will. Anyway, they'd do that till the pan was half filled with boiling grease, and then they would take flour or meal mixed with water and pour it into the grease and make themselves biscuits. Hmm. Uh, and, uh, and then it was the, that was what they had to eat, unless they overran a Yankee camp. Well, this is a hard tack. Hey, listen, Sandy, I was going to say, um, how can people purchase the book? I wanted to be sure to get that in today. Oh, yeah, let's do that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Voices from the Confederacy. Voices from the Confederacy by uh, uh, Post Hill Press has it, but um, uh, Amazon.com would probably be the easiest way for your members to, uh, your okay. listeners to get it. Uh, well, it sounds like a fascinating book if people want to really get into uh, the details of the Civil War and how people fought back then. That was very interesting, how they lived, how they camped. And uh, very interesting to me. Now, yeah. listen, are no, you working go on? Ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, are you um, working on another book? I think I'm going to have a, do a reprint of uh, a revision of my first Civil War book, uh, Richard Taylor and the Red River Campaign. Uh, it, uh, Richard Taylor's an, an unsung genius. Uh, he was the son of President Zachary Taylor. And he was um, more like George Patton than anybody else in American history. Hmm. And he took his little uh, Louisiana Army of North, uh, Western Louisiana. Uh, it had uh, less than 9,000 men. And he attacked uh, General Banks, who had 32,000 men in the Union Army of the Gulf. Now, Banks was a not qualified to be a general. He was a former speaker hmm. of the U.S. House of Representatives. So if you can imagine one army being commanded by General Patton and the other army being commanded by Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> you, you have I, a pretty good I get draft. the idea. <laughs> That's good. Well, <laughs> well, I'd like to, I, I'm looking, you know what, you, I have several of your books on on my reading list, and uh, but uh, I haven't been able to get to all of them because uh, you do pump them out, and I appreciate all your scholarship on that. So, listen, we're about out of time, but thank you for joining me today. Yeah, uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, I want your listeners to know we do go into uh, individual war stories quite frequently here. If you got time, I'll tell you my favorite. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, we'll, uh, we'll just uh, have you back. How would that be? We'll just have you back sometime. Oh, I love Sam. That's good. That yeah. would be good. Well, thank you yeah, so much, uh, Sandy, for being here. Well, thank you for having me as a guest. Okay. All right, Sandy Mitchum, everyone. The Voices from the Confederacy, that's the new book, and I uh, hope you are able to purchase it if you're interested in history, and there's, there's the book. Thank you again. Sure. Talk to you later. Uh-huh. All right. Bye-bye.